We are in a series on the book of John, and uh, I, I don't, sorry, that, I just, we're in a series on the book of John. We're in John chapter 18, and uh, we're going to be looking at this passage, and I want to read it to you. It's, it's 11 verses, John 18, 1 through 11. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you have it on your phone, you can go there, or you can just listen, and I will, and I will read it for you. It's a fairly familiar passage. And uh, so you, you, you probably have heard this before. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and, and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus knowing all that was, about, was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So I just, this, this is the arrest. This is what's going on. We're kind of familiar with this. This isn't something new. We've been looking at, at uh, John 13 through 17 as Jesus has been teaching the disciples intensively at the Last Supper and then afterwards as they walk together through the Kidron Valley. And he's been teaching them and then he prayed and then he finished his prayer. Now, John doesn't have the uh, Jesus's time with just Peter and James and John in the Garden of Gethsemane. John John doesn't mention that. It happens during this time, but he, he doesn't necessarily mention it. And part of that is because John is the last gospel written, significantly after the others. John knows the other three gospels and what they say. And so what he has done is he's written with a very specific purpose. He's, he's, he's writing with a number of very key things, themes, and some things he just doesn't bother mentioning, and it's because it would just grow and grow and grow, and he even says, if I wrote all the things, it would be too much to contain. And so here we have a story. It's, we're familiar with it. It's like the Christmas story. You know, we're coming up on Christmas, and this is, this is where pastors just agonize because everybody knows the Christmas story. Everybody knows this story. So how do you, how do you teach it? How do you teach it? That's it, without people going, ho-hum, here we go, yeah, yeah, tidings of great joy, Mary, great with child. We all know this. We all know this, right? But it's good to work through this again. It's good to remember. It's good to reinforce. It's important to what we believe. But also, sometimes we, when we study it, we see something in a different light, and something may strike us that has never struck us before, and that might even happen this morning. And that's good. That's because there is no end to the depth of these scriptures. And so the cross and the empty tomb, they're looming. And we're looking at how we get there. And it starts with the, the arrest of Jesus. And I want you to see first, just the setting. This is this first couple of verses. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Okay, so let's just kind of understand the, the geography. They've crossed down 
through a valley and they've gone up a hill. I'm going off camera. They've gone up a hill. This is such a big illustration. On the other side, right? So they've gone down through a valley, hill on the other side. There's a garden there. It, it, and we think of garden, you know, like we think of garden. It's not like that. It's not like there's beautiful flowers and there's little walkways and you can see. It, it's, it's olive trees. It's an olive garden. Uh, we know that. It's because it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the name of that place is Gethsemane. And Gethsemane has to deal with olives, all right? Just, we'll get into that. So, so they've done that. And then in verse two, now Judas who betrayed him knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Okay, so this is a place they all know. They know it very well. They've gone there before. They've probably spent the night there quite a few times when Jesus taught in Jerusalem because it was an easy place. There would, be a, uh, there would probably be a few buildings there where they harvested and stored olives. So there would be places just to stretch out and, and sleep. And so this is a t- place they'd met often. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, detachment of soldiers is um, interesting. The, the Greek word actually is a cohort. Now, a cohort in, in, in the Roman army was 600 men. Now, sometimes the word cohort could be used a little loosely, like it's supposed to be 600 men, but it's really just 500 men, that type of a thing. Or like a, 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 a battalion goes into battle and they lose quite a few men and they say the, co- the cohort came out, but not all of them because a lot of them died. But generally speaking, it's around 600 men. So I want you to see, when, it, when, when you first read detachment of, tr- of troops, you think like 12. No, it's not. It's hundreds. It's hundreds. They were loaded for bear. They were ready for a problem, all right? So when we look at this, it doesn't mention Jesus' wrestling with prayer. That had already happened. You know, John doesn't include that. Um, Keeping in mind, this is a place they would go oftentimes. And also keeping in mind, these are soldiers. You'll see sometimes paintings or whatever. It's a bunch of guys dressed like Jewish people with robes and, and all these kinds, and they got like a short sword. No, these are soldiers. They are pretty sure they either were Roman soldiers or they were part of the temple guard, which also was a military, trained military outfit. They would have armor. They would have, you know, the helmets. They would have the, uh, the, the be equipped like a, uh, a Roman cohort would be equipped. So that's the setting. First point, there is a glory that is revealed here. And that's in verses four, five, and six. Jesus, knowing that all, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. All right? I want you to, there's a couple things I think that are interesting here. First of all, when they ask about it, they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, why would they say that? Because there's other Jesuses. Jesus is not... Uh, just a very rare, exclusive name. It was a name that other people had used in the past and would use in the future. And so they're looking for a very specific Jesus, the one from Nazareth. But there's a little something in this, because when you study that culture, and when you understand, oftentimes, if someone was proud of where they were from, like uh, I was born in Washington, D.C., and so I could be Robert from Washington, D.C., or Robert from the Capitol, right? That sounds good. I was born close to the Capitol. There were other people, though, they weren't as thrilled with where they were from, right? And so they wouldn't mention that. That wouldn't be something they would necessarily advertise. 
And so if we think about Nazareth, Nazareth was a small backwater town in a small backwater area, Galilee. It was an insignificant area. Galilee was an insignificant area of an insignificant country. Not much was thought about Israel or anything like that. So when they say Jesus of Nazareth, this can also be in a way a little bit of a slight. Jesus from Podunkville. Jesus from the boonies. Where's he? Jesus from the place no one cares about. And Jesus replies, I am he. But it's interesting because in the Greek, it doesn't say that. In the Greek, it just says, I am. Now that immediately starts, you start going, uh-oh, this, this is very important. This, this is very important. And so I want, you to, I want you to see how important this is. The translators, and, and I'm not slamming translators because I understand how hard of a job it is to take a language and then, then turn it into another language. They added he, I am he, they added he to smooth out the reply, to make it more readable, to make it more understandable. Because I am doesn't make sense. It's not grammatically right. It's, it's kind of open-ended. It's kind of awkward. It's awkward in the English, but let me tell you something. It's awkward in the Greek. For people who, who are, are, are specialists in the Greek language, they're saying that's an awkward answer. Because there needs to be an object for a sentence to make sense. Think about it. It's like, let's suppose you invited my wife and I to your house for dinner. And someone knocked on your door, someone looking very official. And they said, we're looking for Robert Ellington Mosley. That's my name, just in case you didn't know. That's my name. And you would hustle back to the dinner table and you say, Bob, there are some obviously important looking people who are looking for you. And they used your whole name like when your mom did when you were in really big trouble, right? And so what would I do, right? Being a pastor that I am, I would say, are they from the IRS? Because <laughs> if they're from the IRS, go tell them that I died a year ago, I'm going out your back door, right? No, no. I would go to the door and I would say, you know, they would say to me, are you, you know, we're looking for, I guess I should say it the way they said it, we are looking for Robert Ellington Mosley. And I said, I am. And they'd be like, you are what? You're him? Because I am is a little awkward, right? It just doesn't quite make sense. I'm looking for Robert Mosley. I am. It just doesn't quite make sense. It's jarring. But I am comes up a lot in the life of Jesus. He uses it a lot. And it is the name of God in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God goes and tells Moses, I want you to go tell the Pharaoh to set my people free. Let my people go. And what does, if you remember, Moses says to God, okay, and this is the reverse Mosley version, okay? So Moses says to God, he says, look, I know what Pharaoh's gonna say. There's lots of gods. Pharaoh's gonna say, we have a lot of gods. Which one do you represent that's telling me to let them go? I want to know what God you're representing, right? And what does God say to Moses? God says, I am that I am. Tell him, I am sent you. I am. That is four Hebrew consonants. Yod, He, Vav, 
hey, if you know me, I go crazy on this because it's so cool, and I love this, but we can't get into it too deep, but it's the, the, it is the name of God. It was so holy to the Jews that they wouldn't write it. It was so holy to the Jews that they wouldn't speak it. They wouldn't speak that name because that was the holiest name. That was the name of God. It's where we get Yahweh. We take and add the consonants to make it readable. Um, some people use Jehovah. I want to tell you the, the way they came around to this idea of Jehovah was through a terrible grammatical mistake, but we'll get to that some other time. So if you have friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses and they tell you that's the only name of God, I'm telling you, just on the basis of grammar, they're wrong. But okay, we'll go, not, not to slant, you know. Okay, so God says, I am sent you. That's my name, I am. That means I exist. I am. And this is, uh, this is not a name by the standards of any name. Other gods had names that described their power, described their ability, described their function, described their locality. Some, something formed the name of that god. So when you see the name of Baal, it has a name. That name means something. You know, when you see these other names, all these other names that, that gods had through the Greek gods and everything, they meant something. The name meant something. But when you say, I am, there's no meaning to it. it just, it's just, I exist. What God is trying to say is, I am the infinite God. How can I describe myself to you? I just am. It's unlimited. It's open-ended. It's totally unique. If it was I will be, it shows a beginning. There was a time that I didn't exist. I was not, and then I was created. That would be I will be. If it's, if it's I was, then it shows an ending. There's a time when I will not be. But I am means there's no beginning. There's no ending. Not made. Eternal. Infinite. I exist, so no other name will do. And Jesus speaks it. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And, and it, Scripture tells us it knocked them back. I got There's an artist rendering of this, of them pulling back in awe. And, and fear and respect and so many things all wrapped up the idea. The idea was that the power of the name was pushing them back and pushing them down. It says they fell back and they kneeled or they were forced down. Back shows the power. Down shows the idea of worship. They were, they were thrust down suddenly. The idea that something incredible was happening, something terrible could happen. What is Jesus doing here? Right? What is he doing? In a way, and I, I, I thought about this, and it almost seems disrespectful, so I don't want to mean it in a disrespectful way, but in a way, he's flexing. He's just showing a glimpse of his power. Just a glimpse, just a, <clears throat> like that. Just a glimpse of his power. And boom, they are intimidated and they're scared. He gives them a tiny glimpse. He's saying, I am. I am the infinite God who has come down in this moment into this body, one person. When you look at me, you are staring into the face of infinity. You know, that's an interesting thing for us too. Scripture tells us that when we pray, God gets face to face with us. And when you're praying, you're looking into the face of infinity. And he loves you. That's an amazing thought. 
That's incredible. So Jesus gives them a tiny glimpse of his glory. And what is he doing? He's showing them who really is in control. You know, you've come to arrest me. Boosh. That's all I think, you know, I start thinking of superheroes that can do that. You know, I always think that's, I always love that kind of stuff. He just says his name and it pushes them back and down. He's showing them, I have the power. You've brought 600 men. You think you have the power. Let me show you, I have the power. In the Chronicles of Narnia, There's a great passage, I think, that helps illustrate this. I'm going to read it to you. But as for Aslan himself, who is the representation of Jesus Christ, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or what to say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they caught a glimpse just a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes. And then they found they just couldn't look at him and they went all trembly. I love that. I love that. They looked into the eyes and it was overpowering, incredible. It made them tremble in spite of the love they saw. This is just parents, man. Read your kids these books. They are Awesome. I still read them. I love, I, I, I know, I love kids stuff. I love kids stuff. I know <clears throat> sometimes my wife looks at me and just says, are you still six? Is this what's going on here? Is that why you're acting this way? And I'm like, yep, that's the way I was when you married me. And it's the way I am now. I mean, Bluey's my favorite TV show. All right. So there you go. That just shows you something. So, so anyways, we, <laughs> sorry. So Jesus does this and it is incredible. It is, it is terrible and yet loving at the same time, frightening and yet comforting at the same time. And so there is this glory that's revealed. When glory is revealed, it drives people to their knees and nothing else is important anymore. When glory is revealed, it drives you to your knees and suddenly it puts everything in perspective. You know how sometimes when you're dealing with things in your life, maybe dealing with issues or struggles, and you meet someone who's struggling way more than you go, wow. It helps you put it in perspective, right? When the glory is revealed, everything is put in perspective. So a new glory revealed, a glory revealed, and now a power revealed. And these two are so intertwined, it's hard to separate them, but, but uh, we will. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. And again, it's, I told you that, I am. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Verse 10, then Simon Peter had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? And so there's this large group of soldiers. The high priest has sent them to arrest Jesus. Now, when by law, When the high priest sends someone to arrest someone in his name, he's supposed to go. But he is allowed to send a representative, right? And so we see that here, that he has sent a representative. I think what he's thinking is this could get ugly, things could get bad, I don't wanna go. I don't wanna take a chance. He sent 600 men, a large group of soldiers. They did it at nighttime, so there'd be less a chance of a fight because there wouldn't be crowds hanging around. 
The high priest remembers the triumphal entry. Remember that? They told Jesus, tell these people to be quiet. And he says, if you quiet them, the stones will start screaming. So he does it at night. And he sends a large group of soldiers, maybe 600 trained warriors. He does it in a private place. This is why Judas is critical to this plan. They find a place where they know Jesus will be, where there won't be other people. And notice what Jesus is thinking the moment they show up. He says, let them go. I know why you're here. Let them go. He's thinking of those he loves. It was interesting the last couple of weeks as we've looked at the prayer of Jesus, he's getting ready for the cross. Who does he pray for? He prays for the people he loves. He prays for his disciples. He prayed for us in that prayer. He prayed for the ones who had come to know him later on in his high priestly prayer just before he dies. He prayed for you and he prayed for me. That's the God we have. In the moment of his arrest, when they're going to take him away to kill him, he says, he thinks of his disciples. This is the God we serve. He has the power. But his thoughts are always for us, for others. And there's a hint here of something else that's important. The high priest has to be there. He has, or he has to send a representative. And so he sent a representative. He sent a servant, and, and that word servant is the common word for slave or bond servant. A bond servant is someone who has gotten themselves into debt and they sell themselves into someone's employ for a certain numbers of years. They become a slave to pay it off. And so this guy, Malchus, is some sort of a slave or maybe a bond servant. The word Malchus, name Malchus, has Syrian or Phoenician roots, so he's probably not a Jew. Because the high priest, if he thinks that someone, people may die, he doesn't want to send his own countrymen. So he sends a foreign slave to represent him. If there's going to be trouble and bloodshed, he decides to send someone he could easily lose, easily afford to lose. Imagine being Malchus, right? You're a slave of the high priest. He comes in and Malchus, I've got a very important job for you. You're going to represent me. Really? Because usually I just wash dishes and wash people's feet, man. So this is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I got 600 soldiers to go with you. Really? Is this guy like a murderer? No. Does he have an army that we're going to have to fight? No. There's just 12 guys, fishermen, peasants, one tax collector. Not, not any problem. 600 men. And you're sending me. <laughs> what a privilege. Right? He's, he's thinking, what is going on here? And, and, you know, Peter attacks Malchus. And the soldiers, that doesn't even bother them. Why? Because he's a slave. He's not important. They came for Jesus. All this other stuff is not that important to them. Because he's a nobody. And remember, Jesus heals his, his wound. In the midst of being arrested, the high priest's representative, Jesus, heals him. He heals him. That's the God we serve. In the midst of his enemies, acts of love and mercy. So there's a different kind of power at work here, a healing power in the midst of hate. And the least significant person there is the recipient of that power. This is our God. Now, Peter 
obviously thinks there's a different kind of power at work, right? At least at first. Have you ever wondered why, this used to bug me so much, why is Peter willing in this moment to whip out his sword? 600 men, soldiers, whip out his sword. Let's see, armor, 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 no armor. You know, hit, hit somebody, attack someone. He's willing to risk his life. When, when Peter said he would give his life for Jesus, he meant it, and he's willing to do it right there. But what's going on? Because I, I guess it hits me that later, and we'll see this, he is humiliated by a little girl who is either a preteen or younger, and he curses Jesus and denies that he ever knew him to her. How did he go from, you know, Mr. Bad Dude to, uh, and just he's so easily cowed? How did that happen? Well, I think what's happening is Jesus' words in the past four chapters, he's been talking about all these things they've been troubling. They've been hard for him to understand. But Peter now is in a situation that he understands. They're here to arrest Jesus. This cannot happen. Therefore, it's time to fight in spite of the odds because the odds don't matter when you have someone who can raise the dead on your team. The odds don't matter when you have someone who can heal on your team. Jesus is gonna come through. He's sure of it. He's God. And it is impossible. They are still struggling with this idea that God could die. That's impossible. So it's time to fight. It's time to take power. Peter's like, this is it. We've been waiting for this moment where Jesus would finally show himself. He would take power. He, 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 would, he would become the king that we want him to be. He'd become everything, this warrior that would lead us against the Romans. And what is he there? He's there. And Jesus speaks, I am. And boom, they fall back. And Peter's like, game time. This is it. This is it. He pulls his sword out. Let's go, Jesus, I'm with you. I'll take the easy one. You take the 600 guys with armor. You know, I got this, Jesus. You got this, Jesus. Let's go. And it's his, you know, his, his, his adrenaline is flowing. It's like, yeah, let's go. And what happens? Jesus rebukes him. In verse 11, Jesus understands what his thinking is. He says, no, this isn't it. This isn't it. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's like, no, Peter, this isn't the way. There's a different kind of power at work here. And there is no doubt Peter is devastated. And I think this is the answer why he collapsed under that pressure at the fire. And it's just a few hours around a fire. And the little girl says, hey, you're one of his guys, right? And in one of the verses it says, I recognize your accent. Remember I said Galilee was a backwater place? Galileans had an accent that was very strong. In fact, one of the high priests at one point earlier on, about 100 years ago before Jesus, I'm sorry, about 100 years before Jesus, said no Galileans or priests are allowed to pray in the temple out loud because no one will understand them because they have that backwoods accent. And so Peter's by the fire, and she's like, hey, I recognize your accent. And Peter's like, I don't know him. I don't know him. And so he's devastated, and he collapses under pressure. Jesus has been arrested. This is the end. You can imagine what Peter's thinking. This is the end. There is no hope. 
There's no last minute victory. Everything's lost. And when you think that everything is lost, when you think that you are totally done, there's nothing, there's nothing left in you, that is when you can make decisions that are totally at odds with the way you would normally be any other time. And this is why Peter can curse Jesus. Because he doesn't think it matters anymore. What does it matter? He failed. He's not the Messiah. He's arrested. He's going to be killed. What does it matter? There's no hope. He's a, it's a picture of a man who's at the end of his rope and, and everything is hopeless. It's tragic. And if we're honest, we're like Peter. We have this tendency to use power and might. We use it for our advantage, oftentimes at the expense of others. And here we see Jesus totally restrain his power when Peter wants unrestrained power. Peter wants to use it for his advantage. That's what we can do sometimes. We can use it for economic advantage, for ethnic advantage, for social advantage, for whatever. We use our power. We use our standing. We use our ability to get things that we want. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to have things that you want. How you get them is key. How you work that out. Because when it's for our gain at the expense of others, we destroy people and eventually ourselves. One of the greatest examples of that uh, is in, in, in Macbeth this incredible play you know, that Shakespeare has written that just shows insight into the heart of men and women. At the beginning, he's, a, he's one of the noble loyals, uh, noble loyal, royals. He's loyal to the Scottish king. He's brave, he's respected, he's a warrior. And then he hears this prophecy, and this prophecy is that he will become famous and he will become the king of Scotland. Now, here's what's going on right now. Some people are like, oh, really? I didn't know. And some of you have read it. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Bob, okay, fine. Just hurry up through this, okay? We know this. Okay, well, just follow along with me if you know it. He receives a prophecy. You're going to be king. You're going to be famous. You're going to become the king of Scotland. And he wants that desperately. But it's not happening how he wants it. So he tries to rush it. He becomes ambitious. He has this lust for power. So he kills the king. And then he kills a bunch of the servants so that there are no witnesses to him killing the king. Then he kills his close friend Banquo, and then there are more murders, horrible things. Why? All in this, because he said, I'm about to be king. I want to be king. And then when he's king, it's still not enough. I want more. I want more. I got to cover my tracks. I got to do this. And everything begins to unravel. His wife is eaten by guilt. There's a famous, famous uh, part of that where she's, she sees blood on her hands. And she washes and it won't go away. And she washes because she's complicit with these murders. And she washes and she washes and she's yelling out, damned spot, out. And it won't go away. The guilt is eating her alive. And he loses her. And eventually he is killed. But before he's killed, he del delivers these, this, this, this famous soliloquy. He, he realizes, my life is ruined. My life has turned into a meaningless and wasted life. And he says this, out, out, brief candle, talking about his life. Life's a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, nothing. In all the things he pursued, in all the things he attained, he said it all means nothing. He should have read Ecclesiastes. 
He should have read Ecclesiastes. That was already explored 2,000 years earlier. What is the meaning of life? Ultimately, without a God, life is meaningless, meaningless. And Jesus is rebuking him here. He's saying, no, you don't get things this way, not this way. This, this is the way of power. We're not going this way. And it's a rebuke of power used for selfish reasons. You know, many historians point out one of the reasons why the church exploded across the world, and I was reading one of them this week. He said one of the reasons why the church exploded across the world is that Christians gave away power rather than held onto it and grabbed for it. Christians gave away power. They gave. They were the people of the, one, one group called them the people of the open hands because they were constantly giving, not taking. They live for others' sake and not for their own. Um, one of my favorite parts of this is in the book of uh, Philippians, there, there's a young man named Epaphrodites who came to minister from, to Paul from, from Philippi. They sent him to minister to Paul. And, and then uh, he got really sick and he almost died. And he pulled through and Paul sent him back to the Philippians. And he told them, he sang his praises to them. And at one point he was saying, he, he risked his life to serve me. And that word risk, I don't, I don't know if he starts studying this. Paul knows a lot about gambling. I don't know how exactly that works, but he talks about horse races. He talks about boxing. He talks about wrestling. He talks about dice. And this is one. He uses a word, the word risked there is a, is a very particular, it's a, it's a gambling word. And it's a word, we would call it going all in where you push all your chips to the center of the table. But it's, it's gambling. It's saying, I am risking everything on this roll. And you roll. It's an interesting word. Um, it's the word parabonami. And parabonami means to risk everything on one roll of the dice. And Paul used that for Epaphrodites. And that became a word that, that caught on in, in the, the uh, early Christian church. And people formed what they called societies of the parabonami, societies of those who risk it all. And what they did was when the plague would sweep through an area, especially big cities, some of the Roman historians talk about it and it's horrific. They would say you would see people fleeing. Somebody would start getting sick and they'd push them to the side and run away from them leave them to die. They, they, they left their family, they left their wives, their children, their husbands, anything to get away from the plague. It was so horrific. And in Carthage, in 248 AD, the plague hit and it was incredible. And one of the historians talks about this, that people were leaving and you saw parabonami coming into the city against the flow. The bishop of Carthage in, in, it said to his church, let's just stay. If we die, we die. Let's just stay. And they stayed and they tended to the sick and many of them died. And so you had this, this society of people who went to where the risk was rather than away from where the risk was. It's an incredible thing. Hundreds of years, these people served selfishly, selflessly. And then this is, you know, the history of the whole thing. Unfortunately, Christianity became the state religion of Rome. And all these societies that were serving bishops to go to where the risk was suddenly became thugs and murderers as bishops fought with other bishops for power in the state church. 
and they used them for political purposes. And it destroyed the whole concept that had been so beautifully illustrated in the early church. There are some in our country who would like to see that happen. The state really, it's the worst thing that could happen to us as followers of Jesus Christ. Because we're to be the parabanami. We're to be the ones who risk it to go to where the need is, not the ones who grab for power. There is an opinion writer. I follow him. He's really good. His name is Nicholas Kristof. And he writes oftentimes um, very powerful, powerfully, and, and he's very perceptive. And he talked about a trip he took a few years ago where he went in different parts of the world that are struggling with, 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 with uh, poverty and war and terrible, terrible situations going on. And he said, you'll see two kinds of people there. You'll just see two. One is, he says, almost all the time, but not always, but almost all the time, you'll see doctors without borders. And he says, the other is, you'll see Christian missionaries. And he says, and I never went somewhere where I didn't see Christian missionaries coming into a war-torn country to work with the poor, to work with the wounded, to, to, to be there. He says, crazy doctors and crazy Christians, that's all I saw. Why? Because there's still people who are the parabonami. There's still people who, are, who say, I don't, I don't, I'm not grasping for power. I want to serve. I want to be someone of the open hand, a person of the open hand. And Jesus' rebuke of Peter is an act of compassion. Compassion for Malchus, compassion for Peter. But also it's a charge for the church. It's what we can be. We are not to be those that grab power. We are to be those that serve. Because in service, there is a power that can never be denied. There is a power that can't be second-guessed, that can't be explained away. When you give away to people, it accomplishes a good that cannot be denied. So there's a glory revealed. There's a power revealed. And now there's a purpose fulfilled. So Judas came to the, came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, who is it that you want? Now, I just want to say real quick here, we got to rush here. I've gone, gone a little long. I'm sorry for that. He's, on, he's in an olive grove on a hillside. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've talked about this before, but let me remind you. What does the word Gethsemane mean? Gethsemane means crushing stone. This is a Gethsemane stone right there. What they would do is they, they would take olives, freshly harvested olives, and they would put them in, in, in bags that were kind of a mesh, and they stack them up, and then they would leverage that stone up and lower it down, and it would crush, 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 and then the oil would run out. And if you see there, there's little places where the oil would run out, and that thing used to be up higher. It would run out, and there would be buckets to catch the oil. The Garden of Gethsemane is not this pretty little garden. It's an olive place where they crushed olives. Jesus went there. There's a reason. Because he is being crushed. And they would put those olives under there, and they would put the weight, and little by little, they would, the crushing would grow greater and greater and greater and greater. And Jesus is just now beginning it, and it will culminate at the cross. And that's why he's in that place. But the other thing I want to say this real quick is this, because they didn't, we didn't 
go over this. In the traditional Passover meal, there's four cups. Actually, there's five cups, okay? And we see them. The first cup, and they all, the four come from promises made in the book of Exodus to, uh, to the Jews. The first cup, at the, just before the meal, is the cup of sanctification. And God said, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out. That's kind of this idea of sanctify. First cup was cup of sanctification. Second cup is just before the first course, it's the cup of judgment. Or sometimes they would call it the cup of deliverance, meaning I will deliver you from slavery to them. And they would drink that cup. Then the family would eat the meal. So two cups, then you'd have the meal. Then they'd have the third cup. And the third cup was the cup of redemption. Based on God's statement, I will redeem you from an outstretched arm. They would drink. Then their fourth cup would be the cup of protection. When God said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. He's looking over them. He's protecting them. Those are the four cups that they would drink. Then there was a fifth cup. It was called the cup of Elijah. And the cup of Elijah is a cup that comes from quite a few different passages in the Old Testament that that talks about God's wrath. And so it was called the cup of Elijah or the cup of God's wrath. They would not drink that cup, right? They wouldn't drink that cup. Here's what they said. They said, when Elijah comes, well, really, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us what to do with that cup. We don't know what to do with that cup. And so Messiah will tell us what to do with the fifth cup, the cup of wrath, the cup of Elijah. And it's interesting, if you look at Matthew, and I could go into this, uh, it looks like Jesus drinks the first two, eats the meal. It says after he eats the meal, then he drinks a cup, and then he says, I'm not drinking anymore. He drank the third cup, but not the fourth cup. The fourth cup is the cup of God's protection. And Jesus knew that's not available to me now. He didn't drink the cup of God's protection. But what did he drink as the fourth cup then? He drank the fifth cup, the cup of God's wrath. The Jews always believed that Messiah will tell us what to do with this cup. And Jesus said, I know what to do with this cup. I drink it. I drink it. And he did that. In fact, in verse 11, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And maybe I know I have an overactive imagination sometimes, but I can imagine God with tears in his eyes handing that cup to Jesus. Drink the son for the sake of our children, for the sake of these people. Drink this. And this is how much you mean to God. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. This is true love. This is the love God has for you. This is a love that is demonstrated for God. Demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his love. He doesn't just voice his love. It's a love that works. It's an intimidating thing and yet a freeing thing at the same time. And so for us, as we walk away from here, remembering there is, in this world we go out into, there are people who need Jesus. You meet them every day. You'll meet some today. And we are to be the ones. We are to be the ones who are the lights in the dark, who shine where there's nothing to see nothing not able to see. We are to be the ones who represent him as we go. It is daunting, and yet it is an incredible privilege at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
that it is true. The depths will never be plumbed. And so we thank you that we can spend time studying and learning and growing. Father, help us to take this, take these truths as we see your glory, as we see your power, as we see your purpose, that we would internalize them. We would, we would make them a part of, part of our lives and little by little become more and more like you. The people who do not grasp for power, but the people who look for others to serve. The para bonani. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.